Every August or so, I find myself praying the words of the same prayer. Dear God, may every child have someone to eat lunch with today. Dear God, may someone, every child, have someone to eat lunch with today. It's a prayer that I have personally prayed for myself at different stages in life, whether it was showing up as a second grader in a brand new school when my family had moved from Kansas to Missouri, or showing up for my first day of seminary in a sea of students who had seemingly secured a significant education in scripture and tradition prior to their arrival. But I suspect that my prayer, dear God, may every child have someone to eat lunch with today, pales in comparison to the hopes and dreams, worries, and fears that many of you have for your children. Individuals who walk out the door every day with backpacks on their bodies, an appearance that forces you to believe that they are indeed human beings when it feels like it's actually a piece of your heart that has legs, that is walking out and about. Recent days have produced many emotions as some of you have held your breath as your child took a city bus to school for the first time by himself. Others of you have discovered a lump in your gut when it hit you that your daughter is no longer the child that allowed you to hold her, but instead a young person going through puberty and a body that is being transformed into that of a woman. Still others of you held your child through an evening when they came home and told you how they felt so alone at school that day or how sad they were because they didn't make the varsity team. As one who doesn't have children of my own, I do not understand how a heart can actually be big or strong enough to hold all of the joy and the pain, the peace and the anxiety, the anger and the awe, the questions and the clarity that being a parent can produce. And this week, while praying for many of you, I found myself wondering about God. One we believe is like a father and a mother but far more faithful, loving, patient, and understanding than any human parent. If God loves us with a depth that none of us can even begin to comprehend, then how does God cope? Whenever God sees us moving out and about in the world. How does God cope when God sees us suffering? 
And God sees us in pain. A journey through Exodus commenced last Sunday morning when we learned about five very courageous women who subvert Pharaoh's plans to kill every male Hebrew child. Their civil disobedience enables baby Moses to be rescued by Pharaoh's daughter, who returns him to be nursed by his birth mother, and then ultimately raises him as well as names him. While Moses has lived his life among the Egyptian elite, he has seemingly not forgotten who he is at his core, that he is an Israelite. Because at the end of chapter 2, when Moses sees an Egyptian beating an Israelite, Moses kills this Egyptian and hides him in the sand. The very next day, Moses seeks to mediate the argument of two Israelites who question who he is and how he got the power to judge them. These fellow kinsmen then name that they know that Moses committed a murder. His secret isn't exactly a secret, but is well known by everyone, including Pharaoh, who we're told is out to get Moses. And so Moses takes off running. He flees to the land of Midian, where he's matched to marry the priest's daughter, who then transforms him into the shepherd of his flock. All of this movement takes place against the backdrop of the Israelites groaning under slavery in Egypt, crying out to God for help. And we then read how God heard their groaning and God remembered God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God took notice of them. And God then summoned a part. An unprepared person who's seen the pain of his kinship had led him to murder, an action that had led him to flee for his safety, and a flight that led him to lead his flock beyond the wilderness to the wasteland of Horeb, where Moses discovers that he is not alone, but rather in the presence of God who captures his curiosity with an angel who appears to Moses in a flame extending from a bush. I suspect many of us have heard this story before. Perhaps we've even been asked about our burning bush moments. It's a story that is used anytime people are seeking to illustrate how God calls someone into ministry. Since the story includes many of the elements of a traditional call story, there is a divine appearance, a commission, some objection, and then some reassurance by God. But rather than placing our focus on Moses, on the one who is being called in the passage. I wanted to invite us to put the focus on God, on the one who calls. I don't know what God's voice sounds like. 
But imagine a voice in your life that regularly speaks with kindness and compassion, saying in a way that you can hear it, I have observed the misery of my people. I have heard their cry. I know their sufferings. And I've come down to deliver them. God heard the cry of the Israelites. God knew their suffering. God came down to deliver them, and then God continues to embody divine initiative as God enters into the suffering of humanity. God then seeks to lead people to liberation by meeting individuals right where they are and helping them to see how much is possible when one believes that the Holy One of Israel is indeed in our midst and will not let us go. I will be with you, God says to Moses. But tell me again who you are. Moses asks God, what is your name? I am who I am, God responds, revealing how God longs to be in relationship. If I approach you and tell you my name, my name is Donna, I expect you to say, my name is Cynthia, my name is Sean. And when we say that, we enter into relationship one another. We reveal how we want to be in relationship. We make ourselves available. And so God says the very same thing. I am who I am, after already calling Moses by name. Terence Freetham explains how other translations include, I will be who I will be, or I will cause to be what I will cause to be, or I will be who I am. I am who I will be. Freetham then believes that it is this last translation that is the best or most accurate. I will be who I am. I will be who I am. In essence, I will be God for you. I will be God for you. The force is not simply that God is or that God is present, but that God will be faithfully God for them. And God will also be God for us. God will be God with us, for people at all times and in all places. The formulation suggests a divine faithfulness to self. Wherever God is being God, God will be the kind of God that God is. One who can be counted on. One who is faithful. Wherever God is, God is love. Wherever God is, God will be hearing cries, knowing suffering, coming down to deliver people. Wherever God is, God will be hearing in a particular way the cries of all who live in oppression or bondage. Wherever God is, 
God will be knowing, hearing, responding to the suffering of poor children crowded into a dilapidated building beyond repair in Johannesburg. Wherever God is, God will be knowing, hearing, and responding to hungry neighbors wondering where they will receive their next meal, lonely young adults wondering whether they will finally find community, people who walk into this sanctuary looking for that community, I suspect, more than God anytime they come here on a Sunday. Wherever God is, God will be seeing, hearing, and responding to victims of sex trafficking who stood up from their knees to be paid last night just an alley or two away. Homeless siblings seeking a bathroom where they can relieve themselves or try to become clean. And wherever God is, God will be inviting people to partner with God. God is still vulnerably choosing to use ordinary people, people with less than stellar pasts, people like Moses, you, me, to care for and to deliver other people from whatever it is that is preventing them from living a life that is really life. When Reverend Alan Story was here back last November, he shared how there is not a single example in the Bible where God appears to someone for their sake alone. Not a single example in the Bible where God appears to someone for their sake alone. But rather, God is always en route to other people through you. God is always en route to other people through you. I wonder then, who is God right now seeking to get to through us? What risks, God-size risks, is God calling this congregation to take on behalf of our neighbors? who are not yet set free from poverty, injustice, oppression. What cries does God hear and long for us to also hear? What sufferings does God know and also long for us to know what places of pain is God longing to enter into but cannot enter into unless people are willing to hear, to see, to know, to respond. In the words of Sean Genright, whose question will continue to ask throughout this series, how do I have to be as a human being for someone else to be free? Or perhaps more importantly, how do we have to be as a church 
as a community of faith in a rapidly changing religious landscape for this city to be all it can be for its residents, its guests. Thanks be to God who sees the misery of humanity who hears the cry of whoever it is who is in bondage, who knows the suffering and what suffering feels like, who came down to rescue by becoming one of us. May we boldly accept the invitation to see, hear, and to know our neighbors. To know all who suffer in a way that leads us to want to do everything we can to take a risk that perhaps someone else can be set free. Thanks be to God. Amen.